0: It's time for the Chip Race! Welcome to the Chip Race, still selling its action at face to Unibet Poker. I'm your host David Lappin. Darrow Carney is with me and coming to you from Bucharest, Romania, this is our 18th and final show of 2017. Our headline guest tonight is High Roller and Technicolor Dream Pants aficionado Charlie Carroll. We'll also be chatting with the man who I think is the best player in Australia, Jesse On The Mac McKenzie. Ian will provide us with some news including all the results from last weekend's Unibet Open Bucharest. Diver stops by to help us go through a pretty gross spot Dara found himself in at the Unibet Poker European Open but first Merging Liquidity Back in July Spain France Italy and Portugal signed an agreement on the sharing of their online poker pools while the agreement at this stage only creates a framework for negotiation between the four regulatory authorities, it is hoped that cooperation is on the horizon for these ring-fenced poker territories. there is this is clearly good news and bodes well for the future of poker in Europe. But can you give our listeners a bit of history on how these countries became ring-fenced economies in the first place?
1: Yeah, it's kind of the story of the internet. Like when the internet started in the mid-90s, it was just uh, sort of the the Wild West and everything was unregulated and everything was available to everyone. And then over time, governments got more and more involved in regulating different sectors. Now, poker was fairly late to get regulated. So the history of online poker is, you know, it started around 2000. Um, initially, anybody, anywhere could play and governments didn't, pay too much attention to it. And then as it became a bigger industry, governments obviously became interested, first of all, in regulating it from the sense of like protecting consumers. And actually consumer protection is sort of central to all EU regulations. So the initial impetus came not from taxation, as people sometimes sing, but just in terms of consumer protection, how do we protect consumers? Then also obviously governments realized, well, actually we could make a lot of money on taxing this as well. So individual countries started looking into, first of all, how how they could regulate it, and then secondly, how they could uh, tax it. And when that starts to happen, then governments start to realize, well, wait a minute, we don't actually have jurisdiction to tax foreigners and, uh, or, or to regulate foreigners, so we're going to have to find some way of ring fencing to make sure that only people from our country play and are subject to our regulations. So you saw the emergence of French sites, French-only sites, Spanish-only sites, Italian-only sites, all the countries that decided to regulate first and to uh, to ring fence. The problem is that once that happened, they didn't realize that because the market was quite small in those countries, that the, they didn't have the necessary liquidity to keep going. So all of those markets went into pretty sharp decline. I mean, Italy was an absolute booming uh, poker economy until it became ring fenced. And then it, it essentially almost withered up and died. Similar story in France, similar story in Spain. And the top professionals in those countries had to move country, to be able to access the bigger markets. So it, it didn't really work in the sense of either protecting consumers because all that happened was that the thing kind of died on its feet and it's not a big tax revenue generator either. So now the in, in recognition of that, those countries are trying to think of some way that they can pool all their liquidity, maybe agree a common set of rules and agree Italian players, their tax goes to the Italian government, French players, their tax goes to the French government and so on and, and work all of that out. But it's a fairly complex set of issues that needs to be sorted out. So it may take quite a while.
0: Yeah, now obviously as poker players, you're attracted to the big prize pool I think one of the big carrots for recreational players is seeing that there's like oh there's a 50k guarantee on tonight or there's a 20k guarantee midweek or whatever it is and as you say when these pools became ring fenced you were seeing nightly tournaments shrivel up to the point that they were hard to market for, from the point of view of those guys imagine now let's imagine next year this is like one super European territory what kind of price pools do you think you might be able to see between them they're all pretty big economies pretty big
1: populations in all those countries Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to to see, for example, if those countries that you mentioned, shared liquidity, that that they could have maybe a quarter of a million guaranteed Sunday major and maybe 20 to 50K guaranteed nightly. Whereas at the moment in those sites and those countries, uh, the tournaments are really, really small. Like you're talking about maybe one or two K guaranteed is the maximum on any given night.
0: I'm also hoping as well that uh, shared liquidity will help satellite prize pools as well. We obviously saw over that period of time, tournaments like Barcelona, big big summer tournaments like in Barcelona would generate 20%, maybe 25% of a Spanish player pool. And then in recent years that's been down at like 4 and 5% mm. because they just couldn't generate enough bodies in the satellites to generate one seat in the tournament. So it just became very hard to kind of push the live event. What impact do you think
1: this could have on live as well? Yeah, it obviously it could have a big impact because you're sharing the liquidity. I mean, liquidity is central to online poker in general. When I was in the States uh, this summer at the World Series, I, I played on the um, WSP.com but you have to be physically present in the state of Nevada to play there. And uh, the site is just so small, it's 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 shocking that in you know the gambling capital of the world, you've got a site where the biggest nightly tournament is 2k guaranteed. Wow. Uh, they're having trouble running satellites for 1 and 2k World Series events, even though everybody's in town to play that. And in the European countries where we're in France, we've had the same problems. Live events and live tours have withered up and died so by sharing liquidity and in the states Individual states are also looking to share liquidity. You have the chance to at least reignite the the live scene again.
0: Yeah, now we've we've obviously segued into America now, but that brings up some interesting facts. Obviously, post UIGA, we spoke about that a few weeks ago, mainly when bitching about Chris Ferguson. But it, it it did create a situation where poker was banned all across America initially, and now one by one, Nevada, California are in the mix to come back into it at some point. New that Jersey, could be, New Jersey is obviously there. California could be a very big. That's like the size of most European countries. So Cali-
1: California has the same size the economy as France, roughly. Yeah, so you know that that's a major economy and also a very, a very, very poker positive economy. Let's say there's a lot of successful poker rooms in California already. Poker is very widely played. At a guess, I would say that half of the American players that I played with at the World Series this year came from California. Well. Wow. It is a huge economy. That's the one. that That's probably the one state in this in America that could maybe stand on its own in terms of liquidity. The problem with the other states that have come back, like Nevada and New Jersey, is that they are very small states in terms of population, and there just isn't the numbers.
0: Yeah. No. And, and I think there's, uh, you know, the potential for another big poker boom if America ever came back online in some meaningful way. Obviously, it's kind of part of everyday life in America. Uh, if you're ever over there, they play home games. Yeah. Everyone understands the rules. It's not this niche game sports that we we've been playing for years over there it's it's just a part of everyday life but getting back to europe Not only do I believe that this would be great for poker, and, you know, it's out there now, Cara Scott, Alex Dreyfus, lots of people commenting on, on how positive it is to see this European sort of super territory come about, and we hope it does, but so much so that I've actually heard from some industry insiders that, you know, the relevant people in the UK are keeping a very close look on the success of this merged market. And I think with a view to maybe, you know, joining the UK to this kind of big maybe .eu super 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 site we all might be able to join in a few years certainly an attractive option for people in all those countries
1: yeah I think as a general rule you would think it's better to be part of the bigger pool so they'd be better not joining but I think in terms of softness certainly like a lot of people would like access to the French and Italian and Spanish recreational players <laughs> um, it does strike me as kind of odd that as Britain is is negotiating their exit from the EU they're trying to cling on to the EU player pool so yeah we'll, we'll have to see what happens there but I think certainly most of the UK players I know would much prefer to be in the EU player pool
0: yeah and I think again looking at live events and stuff there's a lot more room to share the Liquidity with countries that you might want to go visit for an event and yeah look fingers crossed i would say watch that space over the next few months we're joined now by our first ever australian guest uh, poker and daily fantasy sports pro former sunday million winner jesse on the mac mckenzie jesse welcome to the show thanks for having me dar and david such a pleasure to have you on now uh, been a big fan of yours for a lot of years we've battled on the online felt uh, many's the time uh, over the last, I'd say, best part of a decade. I wanted to immediately ask you about that Sunday Million win from back in July 2011. That must have been pretty life-changing score-wise, or were you already beasting it up to such a
2: degree that that wasn't that big a deal? Uh, it was still a big deal, but it was the third major win that year for me. So I was on a roll and fairly confident. I actually did a Dara and satellite it into ANZPT Adelaide And January 2011, that was my first big win that set me on a good path. I ended up chopping the event three handed for over 100,000. And I had 25% of the guy who came third, but I eventually lost heads up to Octavian Vogel. Then there was um, the online 109 rebuy on a Monday uh, a few months later uh, for 50K. And then in July, I was traveling around Europe and managed to bink off the Sunday Million.
1: And a lot of um, elite sports people transition into poker. Like we've had um, snooker players, f- tennis players, golf players. Y- you also came in from sports, but a very unusual sport. Uh, could you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, I've um, played high level lawn balls actually.
1: And how, how did you get into this so, because Because this part of the world like we, 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 we mostly associate lawn bo- balls with people in retirement communities.
2: Uh, i was sorry i'm just cracking up at that in australia it had the same kind of stereotype but fortunately in australia we have much better weather than you do in ireland so it's more seen as a social sport that people can get out there there's more sunny days so people go out and have a drink and have a bowl and uh super social game and it's more acceptable for younger people to be playing lawn bowls in australia
0: Yeah, Jesse, I'm going to jump in here and defend you. I I, I play cricket in Dublin and there's a lawn bowls yep. society. Now, I will admit, Dara it does make a good point. I'm pretty sure all but two of the people who play lawn bowls as their major sport are above the age of 65. But there are two younger guys, and the cricketers do like to, you know, have a barbecue and go out there and play a little bit of the lawn bowl as a so- sort of social evening like you described. So I'm going to jump in and defend you. But now I, I realise immediately I've opened the door for Dar to abuse me about cricket. So I don't know what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah, I'm... They, they, you, your club plays all the all the all all the really like sports that nobody plays in Ireland, David, Like cricket. Yeah,
0: there's a squash. There's a bit of table tennis. There's, there's there's yeah, but the cricket's the main one. And cricket's a proper sport. I mean, I write Jesse. Can they can't be they can't be slagging us yeah. off for that?
2: A lot of good bowlers actually came from a cricketing background. So people usually go to bowls after they finished their career in their
1: first sport. I would have said, like, after their ninth sport.
2: I'm actually planning to get back into it. They have this Everest tournament in WA, Western Australia, uh, tomorrow. It's a 1K buy-in, 64 people entered, and first prize is $50,000. Wow. Wow. And,
1: and like, when did poker happen? Was this uh, after or during your bowling career?
2: Well, I... Became a bowls administrator at Marylands Bowling Club in Sydney. It's one of the bigger clubs and we started a junior development program. Um, At that point, I started to play a little bit of Australian Poker League poker at the bowling club itself. It's quite a big club. You guys probably have a lot of smaller clubs, but our registered clubs here in New South Wales are really large organizations with a fair bit of money behind them from gaming machines So they were able to pay me to travel and play, and I would get incentives and bonuses for any time I represented the state or Australia. Also, they matched uh, winnings. So if I won $500 in a tournament, they would match that amount. And I had a pretty flexible work environment. Um, During that time, I started playing poker, and then I got a few good results. And I proved to myself that I could be a consistent winner at poker at that stage, and I had that win in... Adelaide in 2011. But I think I committed to poker about three months earlier. In
0: 2005, Joe Hashim won the World Series of Poker. I'm guessing that sort of induced a bit like the moneymaker effect, an explosion of poker interest in Australia. Recently, more recently, Joe came out saying quite critical things about the modern day player, the hoodie wearing beats by Dre wearing sort of guy who doesn't interact as well. And it sort of plays into a conversation that's going on right now in the game about the role that younger players are playing uh, in being ambassadors or, if you like, selling the game of poker. Could you give me a a sort of a brief summary of like what the effect from your perspective of Joe Hashim winning that World Series was and then also sort of how the game has evolved in the last decade and,
2: and maybe touch on some of Joe's points? Sure. Well, Joe is still the most well-known Australian poker player who I think still sits on top of the money list and he's still an influential character in Australian poker, Uh, Melbourne being the main hub for poker in Australia and Crown Poker being the leading casino to offer poker. Um, I tend to agree with a lot of what he says. Myself at the table, I try to be as personable as I can be and make people feel welcome and enjoy themselves because that's you know that's what I want too. I want to have a good time even though we're competing we can still have a good attitude and be respectful and um, compete with um, a sense of fairness Um, I, I agree with the sentiments of what he said maybe I don't like him singling out certain things like hoodie wearing or headphones like I've done that I've worn those sometimes you just don't want to talk to people at the table and The beauty of being able to play poker is that you can do that you can turn up to the table tune out and and just play um so coming from an online background there have been many times where I just wanted to sit down and just focus on my game and playing live poker for online poker players can be quite boring and tedious so Maybe that's something that's not quite understood by live players is is the background and just the action that you have online and the constant decision-making compared to the live environment. Uh, but overall, I agree with what Joe says, and he's still the number one most known poker player in Australia, and he had a huge influence on development of poker here in Australia. The field sizes started to grow in Melbourne after a Lebanese chiropractor binked the – World Series of Poker main event, it was all over ESPN, it was all on the TV, it was everywhere.
0: Well, look, flash forward to 2015 when my co-host uh, had his biggest live results. You can tell he actually wrote these questions, uh, coming second in the WSOP. Uh, I believe you were one of his biggest investors. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that you even uh, that you hadn't even met Dara at this point, but you did still at the same time make a decision to take a punt on a what, 50-something-year-old
2: guy from the other side of the world. Why was that? I just I felt like some common ground with Dara. Like we have played online as well, and I could see he was a winning online player. But I just had some kind of connection with his background story of him being an elite athlete in endurance running, and I, I saw some value in the package that he put out there, which was including the seniors event. And um, I was more than willing to take a piece because I, I just – thought he would be so consistent with his decision-making and patient as with his background through marathon running. Um, but his online graph is pretty impressive. And I was actually in the same apartment with the prodigies, Jordan Westmoreland, when um, yeah, of Dara managed to chop heads up the Super Tuesday. And it was during Sydney ANZPT. And to, to let your viewers know, in Australia, to play the Super Tuesday, you have to be getting up at, like, 3 a.m. So the night before, I had 10% swaps with Jordan uh, if I woke up and played, but I didn't. I slept in, and they eventually got heads up with each other, and uh, I missed out. But I got to see how Dara played as well as Jordan on that final table, and um, living with them was a great learning experience. And um, i that's how I guess I got the belief in Dara to buy a percentage.
1: Yeah, thankfully it worked out. The popular view of Aussie poker, I guess, without being too insulting, is that it's very fishy. Um, and All my friends who have traveled to the Aussie millions, for example, say that it's pretty much the softest series uh, they, they've ever been at. Obviously, there's lots of great Aussie players, but how fair is this as a sort of a general view of Aussie poker?
2: It's pretty accurate. I feel that we are saturated with... Fish really, to be honest. <laughs> Is that too honest? <laughs> no. <one else. laughs>
0: I, I think I think, in a way, what happens for you guys is because you 're on the other side of the world because you 're not playing that sort of american European schedule that most people grind, which to be honest, I think is where the game probably online moves forward in its greatest leaps unless you 're willing to, as you said, get up at three in the morning that 's not a schedule you 'll play, so you 'll play a more asian centric schedule where maybe there's a reinforcement of errors, maybe that the curve is not you know moving towards gto quite as Quickly and um, and then when you play live, of course you're playing and So there are Australians who maybe aren't in the game as long. Like even as an Irish person, we've been playing the game as long as anyone outside of America. So I, I think there is some sort of advantage to that.
2: Yes, I don't think they were playing No Limit Hold'em on the uh, ship with all the convicts when they were settling here in Australia.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's always a bit dangerous to go down the. Um road of national stereotyping I guess but I had this conversation with a top class French player once about why sort of the average French poker player is pretty terrible and whether that would ever improve and And he said in his opinion he didn't actually think it would because he thought it was sort of like a cultural norm in France to be very individualistic very very opinionated uh, very, very stubborn, you know, all, <laughs> lots, lots of characteristics which aren't very conducive to, be, to get yeah. into poker. Do you feel like it's I the same for I think in
2: Australia, our, oh, it's different, but it ends up being very similar. And I think the main characteristics of Australian poker players would be that they are laid back, they like to take risks, and they're in it to win and they... They're unafraid. Uh, we've had it pretty good here for many years and everyone is on a, has a really good standard of living. So people just like to spend their money how they want in their recreational time. So that results in some pretty good poker games here.
0: Well, speaking of poker in Australia and some of those games you described, you might be more reliant on those home games maybe over the next little while Australia of course had its own Black Friday recently we talked a little bit about Black Friday at the top of the show does this mean relocation for you and the Aussie online pros or will you kind of further transition into other games other um, kind of forms of gambling or will you do what a lot of Americans did and just start grinding a live circuit
2: well the intention was to move to New Zealand and that's still an option for me but I feel that there's an opportunity in Australia with online poker being banned uh, for my daily fantasy sports business. Um, The daily fantasy sports is really taking off here. And another thing that came to me just a couple of weeks ago as online poker was being banned was the chance to be a coach for the Australian Poker League and do the Jackstar Academy with Jackie Glazier basically we're trying to improve the standard of play of pub poker players in Australia. We have a huge pub poker scene here with over 200,000 members with the Australian Poker League and there's four events to start.
1: Wow yeah and you mentioned there that you could could see sort of the writing on the wall for online poker. I mean could you explain to uh, you know outsiders why this sort of how how this arose in Australia because you know Australia's not a market it's At least from the outside, it seems like a very open, free society where you pretty much do what you want. How how did you get to the situation where online poker is now effectively banned?
2: Well, there was a lot of sports betting advertising going on on television during sporting events, and there was a bit of blowback from community groups and concern about problem gambling in Australia. Uh, So a bill was being updated from maybe... 14 years ago um, the legislation was in regard to sports betting mainly but poker was tacked onto it as well uh, even though they were looking at live in-play betting they were trying to ban operators from overseas offering their services to Australians who were not licensed in Australia so they put poker stars and other known poker sites under that same banner whereas we, a lot of us feel that, and we, we have the Australian Poker Players Alliance, we were campaigning against it, and we still have a chance for, for it to be amended out of the legislation.
0: Well, Jesse, I want to bring you back to 2013. I, I think it was probably around the time you did that traveling you mentioned. Your final table at UKIPT London, they were pretty tough UKIPTs back in the day. It was a pretty stellar final table with yourself, Robbie Bull, Jack Salter, Dario Sammartino, Carl Marlin Paul Zimbler, and of course, the world's worst newsreader, our very own Ian Simpson. Could you explain to our listeners how on earth someone as bad at poker as Ian ended up chopping that tournament with Robbie? Did his hyena laugh tilt the rest of the table or did he just run
2: like God? Firstly, is Ian a media personality or is he a poker player? (laughs) <laughs> that's a very good question
0: we'll have to we'll have to ask him that the next time we speak to him i think it may be in a in a in a transitional
2: phase right now another thing from 18 people out he was talking and you could hear him across the room and he just wouldn't shut up and i just didn't want to hear a word from him
0: yeah his laugh is rather famous i've heard it from the other end of car parks outside casinos when he's been inside um do you find players like that i guess like more recently people like william casu from this part of the world have become well known for the old speech play and the talking it up does it irritate you is it something you're able to tune out do you feel like they're giving away some information when you when you do meet someone like that
2: well we've got a lot of loud characters in australia and i've that i've come across and i mostly just try to have fun and enjoy their company and if they say something out of line i just tell the truth and Sometimes that can get you in trouble, but um, oh, the other thing I wanted to, to just mention um, can I just go on a spiel here? It's just about EPT Prague and meeting some people. And um, I, I think you mentioned, David, that I traveled in 2013 to the UK IPT, but I also went over in uh, 2015 to play EPT Prague. And it was really an interesting adventure because I was able to meet some people before they took off with some of their projects I got to meet tonka in Prague just before he started doing the twitch streaming and he's one of the biggest streamers now it's fantastic to see him do so well and I also was lucky enough to have breakfast with random Chew and timex before he started the um player what is it it's poker shares isn't it poker shares yeah so it was pretty interesting being able to meet these guys just before they went and did some awesome things just outside of poker, but um, they they still play. And obviously Tonka's still streaming. And I mean, to see him get to play Phil Hellmuth was pretty awesome. Indeed
0: it was. Now, with that in mind, and, and I guess it will be my final question to wrap up, I just want to ask you about that sort of entrepreneurial side. You mentioned Tonka there. You mentioned uh Timex. You obviously have an entrepreneurial spirit yourself, the things that you've been organizing with Jackie Glazer and whatnot. Is that how you see the future going? Is there a transition away from poker into other industries or will there always be a kind of a a poker fantasy sports gambling
2: aspect to what you do? I think that the common thread in all this is competitiveness. So I want to work on these other areas and I also want to help people. Uh, I think that poker is kind of isolating online poker is. So I'm going to get out there and meet some more people and try and increase the scope of or the scale of some of the work that I can do because I think that it can have a bigger impact by focusing on helping others. So I feel like for the last even 16 years, it's been pretty selfish pursuits Mm -hmm. with um, playing balls at a high level and then going straight into poker. Um, So I get – Good feelings from helping and sharing and uh, working on new projects.
0: Well, Jesse McKenzie, it has been an absolute treat. It has been lovely to speak to you from, I don't know, 15,000 miles away. Uh, You know, Australia, obviously, the game is in a transitional period now. It's going to maybe move from an online centric game to a live one. We hope that amendment uh, can get, maybe can fix the laws and, and you guys can be back online soon. But if not, We wish you all the best with live poker and, of course, all the other endeavours that you're into these days. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dara.
1: Thank you, David. Thanks, Jesse, because I know it's after midnight where you are, so... No,
0: not
2: a worry at all. Thanks for getting up early. Take care. (laughs)
3: It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello and welcome back to the news. The 10th anniversary of the Univet Open Tour has just come to its conclusion, with Bucharest being its final destination. Uh, we've literally got off the, just got off the plane to record the news here. Uh, I personally had a blast on this trip, despite not cashing in the high roll at all the main event. Uh, the atmosphere was a really friendly one, the players party and the hip hop bingo uh, were ridiculously fun sort of side things for us to get involved with. Um, Marius Petra was our eventual champion. Uh, he took home €90,925 in the main event for his efforts in besting the 502 and two-player field. So massive congratulations to him. Uh, next week, the Unibet team are off to Manchester to close out the Unibet UK Tour with its final stop. Uh, the £220 event is always a good laugh and with two Unibet open packages added to the prize pool and bounties on all of the ambassadors' heads it's probably the best value to 120 quid comp in the UK. So I'm really excited to uh, to attend that. Are you excited for it, buddy? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Look, f- first of all, what a phenomenal event
0: in Bucharest. I had such a good time. The Unibet events team absolutely outdid themselves with a memorable festival, both on and off the tables. You alluded there to the, I think they called it Blingo. Um, yeah, hip that's of, what it was. Yeah, but there was loads of parties as well. Shout out to, obviously, Dara O'Carney, who did a double cash about the main and high roller. He got a bit unlucky, actually, in the latter, narrowly missing out on the final table there. Um, I don't think any of the other ambassadors, maybe, actually, I'm wrong, sorry. Danmar cashed as well, as I recall. he uh, uh, he's our Romanian, so he had the local knowledge uh his advantage and um, congrats to him on cashing as well um but yeah i think we were pretty busy off the tables too eni there were a lot of parties some pretty off the hook parties a lot of parties
3: i think i got in at 6 a.m two nights in a row or something ridiculous Uh, No, no, well, we would have got in earlier, but we found the Romanian KFC place to go to before bed each night, so uh, we couldn't couldn't resist. It was the best chicken restaurant we've ever found.
0: Yeah, i got to agree there. As a connoisseur of deep fried late-night chicken, uh, obviously my my, my favourite being uh, the Chicken Cottage. Um, at six in the morning walking over the carcasses of dead chickens to try and get my order in and uh, now this place is actually a step above that to be honest it's a, it's a classy joint
3: it's, it's good it's good uh, finally from us uh, we've got a small brag to be had uh, The Chip Race had a lovely article penned for it written by a former guest of the show Jason Glatzer for PokerNews.com uh, Jason highlighted just how successful the show has been these past four seasons when he penned an article on the account of the history of the show which started back in 2015 Fifteen. Uh, you can find that article by searching the Poker News website for History Behind the Chip Race. Well worth a read and thank you very much for the kind words from Jason there.
0: Yeah, I got to agree with you there. Jason, who you'll remember from uh, this season in, back in episode one, he, Darren and I had a spirited debate about the poker media. We really appreciate him giving us such great exposure and for confirming, of course, to the world that the story of how the show came into being with Darren and I resembles the plot to Brokeback Mountain. <laughs>
3: Oh, God. (laughs) I I didn't know you and uh, Dara were that close, but yeah, thanks. That's all good.
0: There was a reference to it was getting tighter and tighter again in the later, and I was like, oh here,
3: <laughs> love it.
0: Before I let you go with the news, I do want to give a little shout out a result that slipped through the cracks uh, last week. Fintan Gavin won the mega stacks in Connacht for nine k, and he'll actually represent Ireland in the upcoming European Nations Cup alongside team captain Andy Black, also a former guest, Irish Open champion Patrick Clark, last year's Irish Open third place finisher. Chris Dowling, also a former guest. Is actually quite an interesting format. It's uh duplicate poker it's the format they've used in the past Dara obviously played the last one he did very well in that it was a successful Irish team they are reigning champions they felt like a bit of insider knowledge from Dara would help so he's going to be on their virtual rail each evening I think maybe helping them lower variance in uh, what is a unique format
3: oh, best of luck to those guys out there playing that event well it
0: remains that I will see you next week in Manchester it will be our last stop of course as you pointed out really looking forward to that one a, a real community vibe uh, at the Unibet UK Tour. Uh, there's going to be loads more of them next year. I've already spoken to the higher ups in Unibet and the Unibet Opens and Unibet UK Tours and the DSOs for that matter, under uh, the stewardship of the fantastic Alex Henry, will be all over the map in Europe next year.
3: You get all the insider knowledge. After we stop recording, you're going to have to tell me uh, where we're going next year. Oh, I will. I have, <laughs> I, I have the calendar ready until maybe oh May or gosh. June. That's it from the news. Thank you very much for listening. Cheers, David. Take care.
0: For strategy this week, we're going to look at a hand that Darrell Kearney played at Big Blind 1K at the recent Unibet Poker European Open in Las Vegas. He'd gotten deep into the night, one of those long day ones we'd been playing, and a pretty kind of weird hand transpired. Uh, He was at the same table as Belgian regular Eggy Adrian's, who managed to finish fifth in the tournament. He was also up against a few players with whom he wasn't so familiar. Diva Burn is here too. Thank you for stopping by again, Diva. So, Dara, without further ado, can you talk us both through the spot?
1: Yeah, I started the hand with about 45k, which is 45 big blinds. Uh, It was the second table that I played at, and I come to the table relatively short and managed to build my stack. So I get queens under the gun. At big blind, 1,000. I opened to 2,000. Eggy beside me, flats. Quite a wide range. Not too many of his strong hands, I think, in in that range. And then the big blind, who is a sort of middle-aged Scandinavian gentleman, flatted as well. So the flop came down seven five three with two hearts. Pretty good board, you'd be thinking. Yeah. And I had the queen of hearts as well. Mm -hmm. And um, he just shoved all in for more than three times the pot. Big blind? Yeah. The big blind just open shoved. So,
4: it's effective how many big blinds?
1: For 24 big blinds. Okay. So, my initial reaction when I saw the shove was it's either like a vulnerable one pair hand, like a seven,
4: some kind of draw,
1: or a draw and a pair, like six five. Makes sense. Um, They're definitely the hands you would expect to see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there were so, so so I was pretty clear that I had the best hand, so I called and Eggy folded, and then he tabled his hand and I saw the six. So my my first reaction was okay, it is six five. It's a pair in a um, gut shot. So I was quite surprised to see that he had six four of hearts. So he basically had the nuts. Oh wow! And hmm. he also had the heart flush draw as well. So I don't think I've ever been as surprised to call thinking I had the best hand and find myself drawing almost dead.
0: Yeah, I think in that spot, Dara probably felt like, okay, I'm going to have to fade something, maybe quite a big draw. Yeah. Maybe I've got 65, 70%, but it's a great spot to, to get to a 90k stack going into day two. Diver, how would you sort of sum up your opponent's range of hands there in a normal situation? And how much would you think that they could be different in a soft field with certain kinds of opponents? Do you ever kind of make those particular adjustments? Yeah,
4: in a normal situation, like just as we said, we should have one pair and X draw hands, or possibly all pairs well to the board
1: that's a good point yeah um, there can be hands like eights nines and tens
4: yeah i totally agree people like it's kind of that. a panicky
1: shove of- yes yes yeah. Yeah. they, they, yeah,
4: they so. think they're trapping basically yeah. uh, or you know folding out a hands which we don't want to see any more cards you know like overcards cards to the board and that's what usually is but unibet european open special yes yeah, got like i guess less experienced players than in 1k buying tournaments you usually get Um, because you get lots of qualifiers online. So I don't necessarily think we think ranges-wise. We just hit the board hard and just shove to protect the hand. And, yeah, it's kind of like levelling versus good players because you can't put them in the range. So it's difficult because you could literally have a Nuts and you could have a draw, you could have an overpair. So Queen's is like the Nuts where I would just snap every time.
0: Yeah, and in this situation, I feel like Dara, with his post-flop skills, he's certainly meant to lose a lot of chips in this hand, but yeah. there are runouts and there are ways the hands can transpire in a more normal betting fashion where Dara won't go completely broke. Maybe he fires a continuation bet, gets raised, maybe does feel like there are some sets and two pair combos, gets away or calls the raise on the flop and falls to a turn bet. There's, there's ways in which you're not mm-hmm. going to go broke. Sure. He actually played the way he was going to make you go broke, but only with a very narrow subset of your holdings.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you could say, well, he got, he got you to call with a hand, which is drawing almost dead, so therefore... Uh, what's wrong He's with a genius. The way? Well, yeah, but it's true that, like, when I have queens, I'm meant to lose a lot anyway. And I, as it happened, I turned a flush draw, so I don't think I'm, I'm getting away from the hand at any point. No. And his stack was effective. I, I had more chips. Like he got value because I had a hand that is supposed to call there but if I have like for example ace king with no hearts or you know there's a wide range of hands I have that can't call so he basically loses value he's paid yeah. six four which is a fine preflop and he's hit a miracle flop so you need to sort of maximize value in those spots now he got value against my hand because I had a very strong hand I'm you near know, the top of my range but uh, there, there's a lot of my range which would just fold now
0: and what would you have done in that same spot there if you had a hand like eights or nines? Knowing that your opponent is most likely going to be holding a pair draw combo, you've kind of got the same hand. So would that change your action or would you then fear a few more of those over pairs? I would
1: fear a few more of the over pairs. As Diver yeah. said, all the over pairs are in the range as well. Like I don't think he's Kings or aces because they they three bet preflop, but he could have anything between jacks and eights. So when I'm sitting there with queens, I know I'm beating all of those hands, but if I'm sitting there with pocket eights or pocket nines, I'm losing to some of those hands and then the hand and the other hands that he has have decent equity as well
0: yeah so in, in summary i guess slightly unusual hand it, it obviously did the maximum damage to you but advice to any amateurs out there sometimes playing a hand this clunkily you're gonna end up stacking the pro and that's a good thing to happen when he's got the aces kings or queens but you're probably going to get two thirds to three quarters of his chips anyway playing it differently and, and maybe he's got some hands that he would continuation bet that you know you could still find a way to win a uh, decent sized pots when he doesn't have an over pair so you know a little bit of advice maybe even Though it worked out against Dara and for this player. Um, it's perhaps better to take more subtle lines at times,
1: yeah. I agree. Yeah, and the uh, final point I'd make is that obviously, after it goes shove and then called by me, uh, Eggy's going to fold almost everything, so he loses value against him as well. If Eggy has to a good to have point, an yeah.
0: We're joined now by Sunday Million. Scoop Main Event, GUKPT London, EPT Dublin High Roller and Monte Carlo High Roller Champion. He's fourth on the England all-time live money list. He is, of course, Charlie Carroll. Charlie, welcome to the show.
5: Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for the introduction where I've now learned I'm fourth on the all-time English money list. That was new information.
0: (laughs) Well, Charlie, people have described your rise in the game as meteoric. Four years ago, you made a $10 deposit, the only one you've ever made. And today you travel the globe playing high rollers and super high rollers. Has it been the ride on a rocket ship people imagine, or from your perspective, has the journey been more incremental? Um, I, I, I guess neither
5: of those descriptions would be too accurate. It, it definitely hasn't just been a straight gradient upwards. Uh, there have been some pretty heavy downswings and uh, upswings. Um, I- incremental definitely doesn't describe my style of bankroll management either, so um,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> probably uh, neither of those. Um I believe you grew up in Jersey and later in London, and you come from a poor family. How does your mother feel about the success you've had, and how much has the money changed your life?
5: Um, so, my mum, so the, her initial reaction would be uh, probably the correct reaction for most mothers when they find out that their child is potentially ditching university to play poker, uh, which was concerned but supportive. And uh, <laughs> that concern. <laughs> definitely was very, very strong in the beginning, even though uh, from a young age, she, she's definitely trusted my opinion on things because I've I've always tended to have good rationality, at least behind my decisions, even if they're the wrong ones. When I was living in Jersey and I was making say like 1K a day, I think that was the point where it switched and she realized that I might uh, be able to do this long term and it, for it to be a good decision for me. Uh, and since around that time, she's been nothing but supportive. Uh, the the money, it's definitely increased a lot of different things in my life, and I I say this hesitantly, but then I'm hesitant to be hesitant because I don't I don't want to sound like I, I I'm just not not embracing exactly how lucky I am to be in the position I am, but um money money's never been too important to me, and uh, the lifestyle that I like to live and that uh, my girlfriend and I are choosing to live at the moment doesn't actually involve too much money. Um, so I, I, I think the main thing that poker has given me is the liberty and the money is just a, a side project that I'm going to try and turn into other things.
0: That's fascinating. Well, Charlie, you have garnered the reputation as something of a speech play aficionado. Uh-hem, I witnessed this first time when we first met at the EPT Dublin a few years ago. It seemed to me that... Yeah, it seemed to me that every interaction at the table, no matter how genuinely friendly, to be fair, also came with a sort of forensic attention to detail, like your antennae were up and you were profiling the players, sizing them all up, working out their limitations. Uh, I'm sure you worked out a few of mine. Um, and then it seemed like everybody was getting their own tailored speech a little later on when the time came for them to play a hand with you. You seem to genuinely enjoy this part of the game. Is this so?
5: Yeah, it's, it's something that isn't actually as calculated as it often can come across. um, I really, really enjoy just speaking to people in general and that there's no disingenuous intent when it comes to just sitting down and introducing myself to people and asking people what they're like and finding out their stories and things like that. Um, But I I, I guess I, I have found myself in a lot of situations almost... It feels like unethical to say it, but it's poker, so whatevs, but almost utilizing the information that I get from speaking to people to try and induce talk from them or trying to induce a reaction from them when I do speak to them, um, which I really don't like the predatory nature of poker, but that, that is the, the the game that we play.
1: So I'm, I'm OK with it. <laughs> Uh, I play with you at the same festival, and one thing I remember is I remember seeing you looking at a piece of paper with a player's name on it as we were going on a break. I think I read somewhere that you and Ben Heath have a master list of players and their live tendencies, and I also read that you've picked up on a bunch of live tells on the German high rollers, uh, the guys you call the <laughs> Federbots. Uh, are both of these things true, and if so, is there anything you'd be willing to divulge? <laughs> um.
5: The first thing is to write I I wasn't actually aware that I'd told people that. So that I mean what I I don't really mind at this point. Um that's kinda of funny I <laughs> did. I probably wasn't meant to. Um The I, I don't ever remember calling them Fatal Bots. So if I if I did then I I take that back I, I recognise there are different groups of Germans and it's probably not great to homogenize the, the whole German <laughs> high because There's quite, quite a few of them. Um I will not comment too much on the live tells of the germans specifically uh, i i i don't think they have too bad uh, too many more tells than the average players i i think when i said that i was using them as a good illustrator of when you could sit down at their table and someone could be ostensibly on a bad table but with the utilization of live tells you could actually be on a pretty sick table um, yeah. So I, I more use them as an example just because they're so fucking good at poker.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Like one of the things I find about live and I'm clearly not as good in this area as you are, but personally, I find I, I can pick up, you know, a lot on sort of recreational players or weaker players. But as you move up the skill levels, sort of less and less. Uh, I mean, do you find a lot of useful information uh, on players, say, even in high rollers, like against good regs? Uh,
5: yeah, I, I I think I do. So. When you're looking for live reads, that I, I I would deduce that probably means that you would find something that's more player specific. Uh, so you'd say, okay, this guy tends to bet like this when he does this uh, when he has this kind of hand, or this guy tends to have his shoulders hunched like that when he when he's strong. Um, instead of have maybe, I, I think the other approach to live tells would having be having more universal reads on people, um, and then. Adjusting slightly on those reads based on what you see at the time. Would I be incorrect in assuming that you go for the former?
1: Um, I I would say a mix of both. I mean, I, some of my friends are, are are definitely better than me in this area, and that's and and they say similar things to you, which is they're the sort of like generalized stuff that they look for. Um, and I do some of that, but I still do find that sort of like the more skilled a player is, or at least the more experienced they are, maybe. Um, and successful then the likely they are to give off um, anything major
5: so yeah it, it probably means that um, so uh, one other aspect of, of life Tales, um is that the ability to look at someone and kind of just like feel how strong they are and that 's something that I, I assume if you were in the formal cra- category at all even if you 're in both you you'd probably be quite good at and it 's something that I personally suck at i I, I just like I, I am relatively high on the spectrum i was very very high on the spectrum and those uh traits on the autistic spectrum those traits have kind of carried through even if some others have uh have flattened out a bit um Mm. so my ability to like feel other people is just not there at all so i i i I, it's kind of ironic that i i'm so bad at being able to get just reads on people based on a feel of how how like comfortable they are how excited they are um, so I, my approach to life tales is usually a, a lot more analytic than uh, than a lot of other people's. I think.
1: Yeah, that is very interesting because my, my friend Zach Galloway, who's written actually a few books on live tales, he like he's he, he, he's very open about the fact that he is very high up on the autistic spectrum and that he doesn't read people at all. So he, his approach is basically to study. Like thousands and thousands of hours of tape, and uh, sort of just treat it as like you're watching animal behavior or something. It's something that you're learning rather than something he had any sort of natural ability for.
5: Yeah, that that that's how I felt doing it as well, and as well as watching. I I, I remember countless hours of watching like WSOP and EPT footage with holding, holding my laptop right up close to my face. Just be like, I think I can see it. There it is. Um, and also accompanying to that, I, I would try and get reads on people constantly when I was playing like live cash and low stakes live tournaments. I would probably look a bit too much, one might say, but um just trying to collate this huge database uh, to try and make up for the fact that I couldn't just look at someone and feel what they had
1: uh one thing that myself and david have spoken about on the show a lot um is sort of lamenting the fact that um poker gets so little mainstream media coverage these days after your high roller win in monte carlo you did get a fair bit of positive mainstream media attention from the sun the lad bible vice magazine (laughs) aside from producing more happily dressed 21 year old millionaires what do you think poker needs to do to get more mainstream attention oh crap um I,
5: I guess it just needs to be more entertaining. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm definitely not going to be an expert on answering this question. Um, but my natural assumption would be that nobody, like, it, it, if people ended up enjoying watching poker in the way that they used to, and we had all the amazing new characters, uh, in the high rollers and in all of these big tournaments, and people just like gambling around, splashing around huge amounts of money then I feel like there'd be a lot bigger chance that mainstream media would want to catch on to that because they really do. Whenever they catch on a good story, like that uh, was Sebastian Malik was his name, the guy that Mm. went crazy when he won the EPT. Um, Like that, that was a pretty huge story. Like my personal trainer actually yesterday mentioned that to me. And I I think that when people see that kind of raw emotion, they want to watch it, they want to be part of it, but they don't just want to watch a lot of bots sit there and just, like, nod to each other as they bust out for, like, hundreds of Ks of equity swings.
0: Um, Charlie, in that uh, Vice article that Dar actually mentioned there, you were quoted as saying, uh, having had no more than one friend for a long period of time, Uh, definitely stunted your emotional and social development you said uh, i created a defense mechanism i can detach from my emotions a poker example would be how i never feel stressed when i'm on a final table i can turn it off Uh, a few weeks ago we spoke to tom hall about this idea of detachment uh while it's obviously an asset in poker i'm interested to know um if the defense mechanism you speak of has served you well in other aspects of your life or is it actually a hindrance (laughs)
5: um well, like, like a lot of these things, uh, it's difficult to put it in a box of either good or bad. So there have been a lot of positive and a lot of negative aspects of it. Um, So I, I would say that that repercussion of being bullied is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And like, if I didn't have that ability to emotionally detach and get myself away from my previous very, very emotionally vulnerable personality, I wouldn't have had the ability to recreate myself in the way that I needed to, to have healthy social life, to be a healthy, like active person. Um, And now it's kind of benefiting me in in a lot of ways because it seems to come out, my emotional detachment seems to come out in times when I need it. So if someone's being aggressive to me, then suddenly my emotions will just turn off. If I'm playing poker in a high pressure situation, my emotions will usually turn off. Um but then in other aspects of life, uh so if I'm spending time with my girlfriends, then my emotions are slowly seeping back in and my emotional horizons are growing quite a lot. Um so yeah, I I, I think that I'm extremely grateful that it happens, which is a really nice thing to be able to say, uh considering it, it was such a, a shitty time in my life when it when it was evoked. Um but I and there there are definitely still a lot of downsides, like uh Like, I really wish I was a more emotional person, and that is the the general trajectory that I am trying to aim for. I
0: I read recently that you're playing a lot of uh, private games these days, and these games are pretty juicy, but you're a bit concerned that playing them may blunt your poker game or your poker skills. How do you weigh up the trade-off between playing games with a better EV versus games that push you mentally?
5: Um, So the the trade-off is slowly sliding towards the... The mental stimulation being not as important, and I think the reason for that is I I'm not trying to be the best poker player in the world anymore. Um, I it, it definitely like getting to the those top five, top ten, whatever whatever um, metric I, I wanted to be defining it used to be quite an important way of motivating myself, but um now because I'm slowly playing less and less poker, I I don't consider it uh, a very big goal of mine to to get super super good at poker. Um, So I'm generally going to just try and calculate the EV. And uh, it is very difficult to calculate EV because long term is so difficult to predict. And uh, skill is something you definitely need to keep up with. But then also like to keep up with skill, you have to be doing low EV things. and It's a really delicate balancing act i'm sorry i'm just
1: trying to do as as good as i can it seems like you have your priorities in the right order after you busted one drop a few weeks back you posted on the social media that you're going to skip the wsap main event and head home to spend time with your girlfriend and your bunny rabbit how is your overall life balance these days
5: uh it's a lot better it's uh hugely better and um it's something that i think i've i've seen a lot with this new younger generation of poker players they seem to be a lot better than the older generation um and maybe i'm just being biased because i can see all the younger players and all the older players that have that don't play as much poker they i I don't know them um so that that might be untrue but it it seems to be that that kind of direction um the the overall plan and if anyone for anyone that there's listening this could uh, apply to them i'd like to hear other people's opinions on it was um when i first started playing poker was to absolutely engross myself with poker and play it every day think about it as much as i could in the shower going to bed dream about it um and just put every single other aspect of my life aside as much as i could without going too far um mm-hmm. and the reason for that is because i i felt like the long-term benefits of getting insanely good at a game were just uh, at this game were just so huge and everything else like social life um health that they, they were things that are important but wouldn't go away if i if i just put them aside for a year or two um and i i'm really happy with the decision that i i, I took so the the goal was to engross myself and get to as high, high spot in the poke world as I was capable of getting, stay there until I had a steady enough bankroll to live my life and go on to other things and use it as a stepping stone and then slowly taper off and play less and less and less and eventually probably, you know, once a year kind of thing.
0: Well, that's really good to hear. I, I think, um, you know, finding a bit of life balance is really good. Dara, I think you're somebody who could definitely be also uh, in that category of people who kind of approach the game obsessively. But even these days, you seem to have a bit more life balance as well. Um, how do you find the, that sort of um, dichotomy these days?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, we spoke about this when we spoke to Tom in the sense that, like, I don't think I'm a naturally balanced person um, or even a naturally disciplined person. I think I just channel my compulsions um, Pretty well into into, into healthy stuff. <laughs> like, I like that, like running initially, and then um, and and poker now, which is which is you know been very good for me in terms of caring for my looking after my family and so on. But I mean, I do have like you know a, a very happy marriage and three fully grown kids now, so. I think the balance has kind of happened by accident around me rather than <laughs> any particular, <laughs> any particular steps i think i i think i'm pretty bad on this on this stuff actually i i just have an so, obsessive personality
5: so do you do you think that a lot of your balance has come from just at, at different points in your life like having that obsessive compulsion in just like loads and loads of different directions so it's all just kind of like created itself balanced
1: yeah that, that, that's exactly what it is and, and like i i do i do sort of I do draw the line. Like people sometimes think it's addiction. I don't think it is addiction in the sense that, like, when I get interested in something, I'm really, really interested for, and I really want to get as far as I possibly can. But then when I when I when I've gone as far as I think I can with something, I'm quite happy to just drop it and move on to the next thing. Um, Yeah, there always seems to be like one overarching passion at any given time, and then lots of other things that I'm also very interested in, which may actually in the future become the main thing. But uh, and then around that, I've obviously built, you know, I've had my um my marriage and my kids um but but yeah it's it's sort of just by focusing very intently on whatever i'm focusing on at at that time
5: huh yeah that that is like a very good way of articulating what i've been feeling for a long time
1: Charlie
0: you're on record as saying that before poker you used to sell pokemon cards And drugs. Uh,
5: Not not at the same time. (laughs) Well, It wasn't like, here's your Pikachu and cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: well, well, that leads me to a question. On reflection, do you think Pokemon is a gateway addiction? (laughs) Do you think Pokemon is? Yeah.
5: Uh, Yeah, probably. I, I, I think that it is a very like pokemon cards were an extremely addictive thing to the point where they had to remove it from a bunch of schools because kids were like stealing from their grandparents and stuff to try and fund this addiction um but that being said i i I think almost everything out there in modern society has some aspect that that people enjoy doing has some aspect of unhealthy addiction and pokemon cards is probably one of the more harmless ones
1: um and in terms of the of the drugs obviously like you're at an age when people are typically doing a lot of it their experimentation? What's your um, attitude to drugs?
5: Um, my attitude to drugs is, has changed a bit recently following some like pretty traumatic experiences with hallucinogenics. So before it was, Hey, if, it if it's physically safe for you to do this drug, then experiment away. Um, mm-hmm. But always do your research on how physically safe it is and be cautious with that. But now it's, uh, I, I'm definitely leaning towards, more of a do a mental health check as well and a very strong one and a very stern one. Um, But I I, I do think that society's attitudes and it's it's a very like stereotypical druggy opinion, but I think the society's attitudes towards drugs is still so heavily skewed in the direction of don't use these things. They're dangerous. They're horrible. They're going to kill you. Mm. That I, I really feel like it's important for people who can articulate the, the benefits to drugs to articulate it.
1: Yeah, like my my, my my sort of evolution on this is like when I when I was around your age, I certainly did more than my fair share of experimentation and then probably at a certain point realized that it was actually a lot more dangerous both physically and mentally than, than I than I had. Yeah. Thought. Like one of the problems with the way that society deals with it is you get this sort of like oh drugs are bad and that's the end of the discussion. There's no real sort of informed uh, thing on like yeah. what what it actually does to you. So so then I think I reached a point in my sort of late twenties, early thirties where I decided okay well I have this sort of addictive personality but I don't want to go on doing drugs as much so <laughs> maybe I'll find something else so so I went into running and the the attitude to to drugs and running is actually quite interesting because runners in general are very open people um, and yeah. very self-starters and libertarian but but drugs specifically is, is kind of a no-no In, in you know on a physical aspect they look at drugs as sort of you know drug cheats as people who are trying to get something that they don't deserve by just taking a substance and and that kind of even translates into into their attitudes to sort of like mental highs they're like well to get a mental high our ancestors you know went out and ran for 100 miles or whatever and then now these yeah. guys are trying to take drugs to get the same sort of like hallucinogenic, yeah, feel. Uh, feel. <laughs>
5: that's such a cool parallel <laughs> yeah I would have never uh, heard that in a thousand years that's so good
1: one of, and one of the things I used to do was like I used to run 24 hour races and when I described that to people they, they so why on earth would you do this to yourself like the state you finish the racing is terrible and what do you get out of it and the, one of the few things I could actually sort of point a finger at was the, the trance like state you get to in the middle of a race like that it's it's better than any drug hide that I ever had um, and it's Wow. And it's a it's just an amazing natural sort of feeling of being in tune with the universe and with your own body and everything around you, which for me, it was similar to drugs, but actually better.
5: I can imagine loads of people listening to this being like, wow, I should really go out and start running, and then just as soon as they start, <laughs> be like, wow, no. <laughs> this is no other.
0: Yeah, you, you've left out all the part about your, your feet growing to three times the size they normally are, and your toenails falling <laughs> off. And...
1: Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's it's like any other drug. <laughs> there no, no are <laughs> downsides to
5: yeah, it. Yeah, it makes sense like evolutionarily, I guess, in that we're meant to enjoy running we're meant to be very fit and healthy people and getting getting back in touch with that must feel good
0: and charlie to pick up on that something that we are keen to talk about maybe in a future topical section on the show is drugs in poker and to what extent the taking of either performance enhancers i guess is the right description of them in terms of what they bring to a poker player, um, whether that be a methamphetamine, a speed-like substance, which can help focus or concentration, or even something as simple as cocaine, which can maybe help you play a longer session. Do you think it's fair when guys use those and then sit down at a poker table? Are, are they taking the same edge that a guy on Nandrolone is doing in cycling? It's um,
5: oh, a tricky one. I, I always feel that because none of this can ever be policed and i don't i don't think this is this is always true but I, I think in this situation because it can't be policed then it you have to just kind of be okay with it um because it's so so difficult to police because you're never ever going to be able to spot someone that's on like fenibut you know or like ritalin maybe you could but that it, it, you can never actually prove it um so i I actually think there isn't too much of it going on in the high roller scene just from judging from the interactions and conversations that I've had with people, which is like relatively surprising because it's not like people aren't willing to try. It's just that I think people haven't taken, they like haven't been um, affirmative enough to be able or in the right directions to find the the drugs that work and the performance answers that work for them. Um, It has been a relatively big part of my poker career and I I think it's been an extremely beneficial but at times extremely detrimental part as well. Um, There are certain drugs that I would recommend for most people to not go anywhere near and those would be Adderall and cocaine. Uh, for poker and hallucinogenics just don't bother as well like just get out um also MDMA don't try <laughs> for poker um, but then then there are other other drugs that when I've been on them or when i when I've tried them um it it's just been i uh, my thought processes have just been on another level and it's not just like a higher functioning version of my normal thoughts. it's like a more lateral way of thinking it, it it's like a broader spectrum. Of potential thoughts that I could had, could have, and then at a higher level as well. Um, so the, the drugs that I have found extremely useful has been like a, a small dosage of speed, has been the nuts, um, and a, a, another recent one that uh, has come out relatively recently is called Fenibut, and uh, Fenibut is particularly good because it's a lot more sustainable and it tells you, hey, don't take more than this, otherwise it might be bad in this way. And there's a lot of research done online, um, and it actually helps you sleep as well which is for for anyone that's experimented with drugs and poker is the biggest I I think problem that you face is that you'll take a stimulant drug because it has to be a stimulant and then you won't be able to sleep that much the next day but then you have to play like a day two so you have to take even more and then you don't even and it's just like that snowball effect um, so yeah. finding one that actually helps leave is, is incredible.
1: Yeah, the thing you say about it being unenforceable is interesting because obviously athletics m- suffers with the same problem. The, dr- the drug cheats are always ahead of the drug testers and, and most uh, drug cheats are actually caught retrospectively rather than at the time. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, like I mean, the, the the drug companies continue to come up with new drugs, and 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 then it's going to take a while for for first of all athletics to realize that those drugs are out there, and secondly develop a, yes. a, an effective test for it. So what they do is like they take blood samples and they store them and then when the new drug comes out they test retrospectively to to see if athletes were 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 on this drug before they were even aware of the drug drug. so
5: so they get fined in hindsight yeah
1: and unfortunately like they often get olympic gold medals stripped and world records but you know it's it's, in a sense it's a perfect victory because you know they've already made their career and got all the sponsorships and money and all all the rest of it but but yet athletics still does feel this need that well we, we 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 do want to we we, we at least want people to know that they will be caught probably at some point, um, even if we can't actually catch them, uh, you know, as as they go. Um, and like the 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 real argument, I guess, in athletics against drugs is not it's it's not a sort of like anti libertarian thing. It's just that because drugs give such an edge, specifically in athletics that if you allowed everybody to take them, then everybody would take them to the max. I mean, there's a famous survey they did, I think, on American Olympic athletes. They asked them if there was something you could take which would guarantee you an Olympic gold medal, but you would die within 12 months, would you take it? And I think 99% said they would. Um, so, so, so you you would reach the stage where people would just that would be, become the whole focus of their life, and you know they'd completely destroy their health in, in the process. It's probably not the same in 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 poker because there's not the same sort of clear benefit to, to yeah. any
5: one drug a, a question about that. So, I it must be so difficult to determine what the correct sentencing or fine or whatever um, punishment. I should give for for runners or athletes taking these drugs because, like you said, they're still incentivized to take it. So, like, it, is there any very it have have the has the community come up with an actual like good sentencing and good punishment that everyone's happy with that actually disincentivizes people, or is there no overlap between a fair punishment and one that would decent? To incentivize people.
1: Unfortunately, if you, I think in athletics, if you make the decision to, to cheat, um, there there is no real strong disincentive because you you are always going to be caught after the event, and by that's you know you've got, you've got all your money and and your career might be on the wind down anyway. I think the bigger uh, disincentive is sort of self policing from the community in in that like once you're exposed as a drug cheat, you are a persona non gratis. Um, you know it the, the the chris ferguson equivalent in running could not come back and be, be, be greeted as warmly as chris ferguson has been uh, at the world series you know you would just you're just a total persona non gratis and so people don't necessarily want to go to that sort of ignominy for all their lives and i think that's the more effective um disincentive than sort of like oh we're going to take away your gold medal but everybody's going to still remember you winning that gold medal or we're going to Denounce you as a drug cheat, but you're already going. To get, but you get to keep your fifty million in, in sponsorships.
5: That's really interesting. Just uh, I I briefly mentioned on a, a podcast I did recently the Chris Ferguson thing. What what are your guys' stance on that?
0: Well, I saw your uh, interview actually on that one. I, I listened to it and. Um, I know you You probably came from a place that I came from initially when I used to have this d- debate with Dara, which I, I had a bit of sympathy for Chris because I actually know a few of his friends. I know a little bit about what happened on the inside. And I know it was certainly, um, you know, he would have been at the forefront of them not profit taking at certain points. He would have been the one pushing a sort of more honorable business model uh, than maybe some of his colleagues. But at the same time, his biggest mistake was hiring Batar, who was probably the real bad guy in all of this. And he's on the hook for that. You know, that was his call right out of the door. A lot of the other pros who invested their money in uh, Full Tilt when it was a startup uh, were very skeptical of Ray Batar as well. But ultimately, Chris's voice uh, alongside Letterer was enough for Batar to sort of take control of the company. And it was those decisions that really... You know, p- put them in the position they were, and so, uh, I, I don't know. Overall, I, I still feel very sort of splintered on it. I, I do come, I try to come from a place of sympathy for Chris, but I ultimately can't can't get there.
1: <laughs> There's the, the two basic problems. The first problem is like when you are so, so in, 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 in integral to a company as he was, Full Tilt, and you do have to take responsibility for what happened, uh, even if you were internally arguing against uh, some of the more um, audacious stuff that they were doing the the, the, the pure grabs but I mean you, you do you do have to hold your hands up and accept responsibility for that and I'm, I'm not sure that Chris ever did that and another thing is like when Howard Lederer came back he he at least made some sort of attempt to, to set the record straight but Chris has never done that, Chris has never apologised, Chris has never given an interview to try and explain, there have been all these stories about oh well he was in the worst and he was trying to uh, trying to Put the, put the brakes on behind the scenes, but he's never actually come out and said that himself. Um, so at the very least, I think there should have been a sort of a mea culpa um, rather than just, oh, well, I guess, you know, you all got your yeah. money back because stars bailed out uh, full tilt. So, you know, no harm, no foul. And here I am again. Let's just forget all about that unpleasantness. Yeah.
5: So I, I guess the thing that I, I would find important with the situation would be to know his intent um and I, I, I anything other than that like hi, hiring Batar I, I don't know anything about that but if, if his intent was good and he thought it was going to be a good move for the company and was thinking ethically when he was doing that then I I couldn't care less if if it turned out to be a bad decision I wouldn't judge Chris based on making a mistake like we all make like, so many mistakes every day and um...
0: but we do come out and acknowledge them then Charlie as well like I think that is and that's kind of Dara's point too is that if he came out and, and, and set the record so I have a feeling he is a good story to tell I have a feeling that when somebody finally gets that interview off Chris it could make people a little more sympathetic to him a little more open to uh accepting him back into the community if you, if you like but he's just never done it and maybe it's a lawyer's opinion that he was told just you should never do this but i i think that's the biggest problem and i think that's the barrier that nobody can get past at the moment or well most people can't i i mean
5: i i kind of agree that i mean like it, obviously if you are any of us were in his position it, it would feel right for us to come out and speak about him like hey this is what i was trying to do i'm sorry it turned out like this, like I fucked up or I didn't fuck up or whatever. But I I think that without knowing him super personally and not knowing why he's not coming out and speaking about it, I I can't ever harbour negative feelings towards him because it might be because he might... Suffering an anxiety attack. It might be because his lawyer said it. It might be because he he just thinks it's unfair that he has to defend his position. He might be hiding something. He might be malicious. Like we don't know and I think I personally would like to treat that as innocent until proven guilty. Uh as and I i think even though I I do agree in uh with everything you guys are saying, I, I, I think that it feels like he really needs to just be like, hey guys, this is what happened. Here's the responsibility I had. Here's what I tried to do. Um, I I think that that still doesn't justify anywhere near the amount of hate that he's got from the poker community. And I really think that they're just hating him for something that a bunch of other people did, very likely. Um, and even though I, I'm with you and I, I, I am kind of splintered on it, I, I feel like because there isn't much counterbalance to all of that hate, I feel like a lot of like not a lot but I feel ethical pull towards wanting to stick up for him
1: yeah that's fair enough I mean like I do find as well uh, when you started in poker often often bleeds into this that uh, guys who came along in, in you know post black friday let's say um have a different perspective because black friday was such a traumatic um moment yeah. obviously for the whole poker community in fact it's probably the the defining moment for online poker the, the point at which sort of the, the party was well and truly over and so I think because of that people and, and like you know a lot of people's lives were I mean we were fine because we were we, we were in Europe but a lot of my friends who were in America their lives were either you know they either lost their job overnight or they were forced to move out of the country um so I think they're yeah they're far more likely to be exercised by it than say somebody who came along in the last few years and you know just heard about it and say
5: yeah and it it really does sound like it sucked for all of those people and I I have a lot of sympathy. Like, I can't imagine what that would be like uh, to feel like the world is ending in that sense. Well, on that
0: cheerful note, Charlie, uh, before you go, (laughs) I... uh... (laughs) I, I do uh, follow you on all the social media uh, that you put out and uh, you often post fun hands as you like to call them on Facebook usually involving huge high wire bluffs or the tinnest of hero calls in all these sick uh, super high rollers would you consider stopping by on a future episode and joining us maybe for one of our strategy segments
5: yeah yeah that sounds super fun I love speaking about hand histories and uh, yeah I'd like to go into depth about a couple why, not?
0: why well, not? Well look we'd very much appreciate that as would our listeners I'm sure. It's left for me to say Charlie Carroll it's been lovely having you on the show you are always an engrossing interviewee whenever I've heard you on other podcasts so I'm so appreciative to have booked you on the show finally and thank you so much for coming, on. for coming on.
5: Yeah thanks guys it was really interesting hearing your different perspectives on everything there's a lot of information that I've just never heard before and a lot of perspectives that I, I haven't been greeted with before so that was super fun. Thank
0: you. Thank you.
1: And yeah, I just want to say also um your blog about uh David Bowie when uh, when it happened when he died was just incredible. It was so beautifully written and such an interesting like I don't know. It was just such an interesting insight into someone that very few people would ever have insight into, you know. I don't know. It's a it's a beside the point, That's but right, I, I but... just wanted to say <laughs> No, that's that's really kind of you to say. Yeah, I I, I literally wrote it on the day he died, so wow. it was very raw at the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible.
0: Well, I'm sure most of you recognise there the voice of Cara Scott, who was referring to the blog written by my co-host, Dara O'Carney, the day after David Bowie passed away. This story is now part of a fantastic new book, My Bowie Story, Memories of David Bowie, edited by Dale Perry. Well, before I let Dara leave the studio to go on a well-earned Christmas break, I have to ask Dara, what inspired you to write your Bowie story?
1: Um, well, it was actually written the day he passed, uh, right, right at the end. And it, I was surprised at the, at the huge reaction his passing had. had on me Um, and um, to be honest I was having a real difficult time processing so I just decided I would write down uh, whatever came to mind Um, and, and, and that was basically the blog it was written I think 18 hours after uh, after I'd heard he died, after I got up basically and heard he died.
0: Well, the rawness of that experience is is certainly in the words, if you like. I I guess writing something when it's fresh, you you really get to the heart of it. I remember you telling me that story years earlier, actually, one of the first times we ever uh, sat down and had dinner in your own home. And um, I remember being blown away by the story and always felt like, oh, my God, how come nobody knows this already? But I guess maybe it was important to you to keep that kind of secrecy or that privacy uh, within reason, while he was still alive, he was
1: kind of a private guy himself. Yeah, I did feel it would be betraying a confidence telling it while he, while he was alive. Um, and so I told only basically my closest friends uh, and family. They were the only ones who who, who were aware of it. Um, even other Bowie fans weren't aware of it until I wrote the blog, obviously. It, 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 I always felt that there was a sort of an implicit agreement that I wouldn't talk about it while he was alive, but I could say whatever I wanted after after he passed
0: yeah and and then, when it comes to the book itself, obviously del perry has uh contacted a lot of different people to to get their stories to to find out about the great man and his interaction with different kinds of fans. Is there a common motif between all the stories, something that you can kind of see about David Bowie the way he was you know that 's common to all of those
1: yeah, I think the common thing is that boy Bowie, boys um the way that Bowie interacted with his fans was very different from the way that celebrities normally interact with fans. I think celebrities in general see fans maybe as sort of like central to their career or important to their career, but in no way important to their art. Whereas Bowie saw fans as very, very central to his art. He he used to make the comparison that an artist who who writes just for themselves is basically a tree um, falling in a forest with nobody around. It's it's the the the, the audience's perception is. He saw as integral to art. Um, so for him, he started the art piece when, it, when when he wrote a song, but the but it was completed by um, the audience when they heard it and reacted it to whatever way they were uh, that they, they, they were going to react, and that that then became the art piece rather than just the actual pure song. So with this in mind, he was always interested in in in, in, in fans' reactions to his work and and, and to his art. Um, so he did actually seek out fans over the course of his entire career. Um, he certainly interacted with fans. Not as a sort of like come and worship me, but a sort of like well, let's talk about uh, what you think of, of 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 this particular song, or what it makes you, you know, what what emotions it brings up in you, or what do you think it's about, um, and uh, yeah, and I think people who know a little bit about Bowie tend to see him as a very aloof figure um, and I think that's that definitely wasn't the case and that's something which comes across in the book as well he, he was much more um, willing to engage with fans than most artists of his calibre or most celebrities
0: Well if the other stories are half as good as yours there the book will make a great stocking filler uh, anyone out there who wants to pick it up um, I would recommend it wholeheartedly. Uh, it, would, uh, it would certainly brighten up someone's Christmas morning to find
1: that under the tree. Yeah, I agree. There's basically 60 different fans have told their stories. Um, there is a common thread to them all, but there's also uh, incredible diversity because he obviously appealed to, to lots of different fans across the world. Um, and it's, it's 60 stories over four decades. Um, so it's you know different versions of David Bowie uh, come out through the stories as well. So I think if you're a Bowie fan or if you know anybody who's a Bowie fan, I think they'd really enjoy this.
0: Great stuff. Lying us out this week is Darrow Kearney reading an excerpt from that story, available now as part of a collection in the book My Bowie Story, Memories of David Bowie.
1: I was 18 years old when I became a lifelong David Bowie fan. That summer I did my leaving search and was counting down the days till I left my parents' home. I saw it as an escape from a deeply unhappy childhood and household. It seemed like from the moment I could understand what she was saying, my mother wanted to reinforce that life is a pile of shit – All attempts to succeed at anything or find love with anyone were doomed to fail, and it was best not to even try. Growing up in a small town in Ireland at the time, with the widely held views that any sort of ambition was just getting notions above your station, simply added to the unhappiness. So it's fair to say that I left with my mother's words of, you'll never amount to anything ringing in my ears. I was in the market for other parental role models with a more appealing message. David Bowie, a seemingly reluctant star who critiqued and criticised his own fame with his central message for outsiders that no matter how much of an outsider or loser or weirder you feel like at times, you do not have to conform to the restrictions and demands of others, and the only person you really have to answer to is yourself, seemed ideal. Most of the fans I talked to after his death expressed surprise and even dismay at at the depth of feeling his passing had engendered in them. Bowie fans tend to be cynics by nature. One even lamented, good God, I feel like all those pathetic Princess Diana people. The reason for this, I think, was that Bowie was the guy who reached fans who never wanted to be fans of anyone in the first place. An icon for iconoclasts, an idol for people who were uncomfortable at the very notion of idolatry, this was Bowie's hardcore appeal. His unparalleled individualism attracted individuals who were naturally uncomfortable at any sort of supposed communal experience. He appealed to nonconformists, oddities and outsiders
0: thanks again to charlie jesse and diva we'll be back sometime early in the new year with another batch of shows in the meantime keep an eye on our youtube page for interviews bonus material and strategy content until then from dara ian and myself good night and good luck